Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez talks with members of Northern Nevada tribes about a gathering that they were able to have for the first time since the pandemic started over a year ago. After that, I talk with Alyssa Nada, the president and CEO of USAC, the University Study Abroad Consortium, and a student, Tyler Moyet, who was studying abroad in China when the pandemic hit last March. At the end of the episode, we hear from the Carson City dynamic duo Riley Snyder and Michelle Rendells as they give us the lowdown on the state's budget as we wrap up the 2021 legislative session. This week, we have a sponsor for the podcast. We'd like to thank United Health Group for supporting the show. If you'd like to sponsor Indie Matters, email Stacy, that's S-T-A-S-Y, at theenvindie.com. Reporter Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez was in Smith Valley, located in rural Lyon County last week, for a luncheon where members from various Native American tribes throughout northern Nevada gathered for a cultural ceremony. It was the first time for such an in-person gathering since the pandemic began. Here's Jasmine with more on how it went. Nevada tribal members expressed a sense of relief at being able to gather last week after the COVID-19 pandemic hit their communities disproportionately hard. It's been a long year since members of different tribes have been able to share space and practice their traditions together. Pray in this way and ask your blessing. A small red brick church against the backdrop of a mountain range in Smith Valley was buzzing with energy. Native elders and young children were setting up for the meal they'd share following the Pine Up Blessing ceremony held earlier that morning. That was Stacy Burns. She's the language and cultural coordinator for the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. She said the gathering was an opportunity to check in with tribal elders and practice the Paiute language, which she teaches among community members. It feels great. At a distance, you know, I could check in and um, it just seems that that connection's never lost. Um, those that um, speak, those that um, I just love to speak to them and check in on them and just tease them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's a blessing. Walker River Paiute Tribe Chairman Amber Torres said the lack of gathering among the various communities was one of the biggest losses during the pandemic. You know, I think that was the important thing that we were missing as um, Native people is just that interaction because we're, we're family, we're one nation. Yarrington Paiute Tribal member Tommy Gutierrez said he'd been able to see his community members regularly throughout the pandemic. He was considered an essential worker delivering resources and safety supplies. 
However, he noticed a big difference in interacting with his community in response to a public health emergency as opposed to spending time among them in ceremony. Oh, it's incredible because they're in such better spirits, you know, big smiles, real, it's nice. They get to see them as they actually are not miserable, cooped up, you know, so it's nice. Some tribal members at the luncheon, including Gutierrez, had spent the morning traveling from Yarrington, Schurz, and Reno to be part of the annual Pineup Blessing high in the mountains of Smith Valley on Desert Creek. Nevada tribes have practiced the annual blessing, which is meant to spur a bountiful harvest of pine nuts by the fall, for more than 90 years. Pine nuts are a traditional food source for tribes in the Great Basin and were traded with neighboring tribes for other foods, such as acorns and salmon. Some tribal members continue to barter with pine nuts because they are considered a sacred food source. Yarrington Paiute Tribe Vice Chairman Elwood M. was standing outside the church and looking across the desert valley before him. He reflected on the days-long trek his ancestors took every spring in order to get to a special spot in the mountains for the blessing ceremony. They didn't have cars, they didn't have a uh, horse and buggy, they were walking. They, I said even, even the little ones were carrying the stuff they needed because they had to walk because, you know, grandma or grandpa, they weren't going to carry them. They, they had to walk, they had to carry stuff themselves. So, And they walked all the way through these valleys, all the way up into... Bishop area. The ceremony allowed members from various tribes across the state to spend time together then and now. So those campsites they set up for all the people they know that others were coming from around like Fallon and Walker River and Pyramid Lake and Bishop and Bridgeport. They would all come and join just like today. You know, all these tribes are here. Well, I don't know which ones are which, but <laughs> we're all related somehow. You know, we're all tied together. So. Although the harvest is still months away in the fall, the blessing provided a sense of healing and renewal for tribal members like Bill Frank, who's a member of the Walker River Paiute tribe. Well, I think that, like I said, the biggest thing is mental health. You know, being around people you haven't been around before, and it's good medicine to be around people. But it's also good medicine to be out there by the water and be out there in nature and the sunlight. And then just the blessing, of, like the cleansing of the, the rain and the snow, you know, just being on you. And it felt, it, it actually felt relieving, you know, it felt good. And then they were playing the, the round dance songs and everybody out there round dancing again. And it just had really good medicine. It felt good. You know, I think you can feel, you can feel coming back down the hill, like it just, a lot of things were lifted off your shoulders. The blessing ceremony was canceled last year because of the pandemic which tribal leaders believe contributed to a scarce harvest, concerning them and members because it poses a threat to the food source and tradition. Burns said she hopes the energy from this year's blessing will boost the crop, which is also threatened by a warming climate and clear cutting. This year, we didn't have a lot of pine nuts last year, by the way. This year, um, I'm hoping all of our prayers and songs and dances um, will bless us because already we've been seeing a lot more moisture so um, we're hopeful for that you know we need the rain we need the snow we need our snowpack we need so much of these things but we also need the people to come out and acknowledge them speak to them um, gather so it's um, the weather hopefully will be blessed will be blessed in the desert If you want to read more of Jasmine's reporting on Native tribes in Nevada, you can find her reporting on our website. 
The story was written and reported by Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez and was edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells and David Calvert. And the music you're hearing right now is provided courtesy of Amber Torres, who you heard in the story, and it's a couple playing music on Walker Lake. The University Studies Abroad Consortium, or USAC, is a nonprofit that is located across the street from the University of Nevada, Reno, and partners closely with the university. It oversees more than 50 study abroad programs around the world and services about 300 universities. In a normal year, they would have about 4,500 students participate in their various programs. In 2020, they had to recall all of their students who were abroad, starting in January with students in China. As the pandemic spread, all of their students were called back home by the spring. Host Joey Lovato talked with Alyssa Nada, the CEO and president of USAC, as well as Tyler Moyer, a student who was studying in Shanghai before the pandemic hit. USAC expects that there will be about 400 students from around the U.S. studying abroad through their program come the fall semester of this year. I asked Alyssa Nada what the plan is as students begin to think about studying abroad again. Obviously, health and safety has, you know, been the top priority as always. This fall cohort won't be the first to study abroad since the pandemic started. Alyssa said a small group of students were able to study abroad last year, even after the initial recall at the beginning of the year. These were very unique students who went abroad over this past year. We call them our pioneers as they really were a special group, very unique, very focused, really resilient, adaptable, you know. And so imagine, you know, choosing to go and actually going during a global pandemic, I think is pretty amazing. And they really proved to be really successful. They proved that it can be done. Fall of 2020, we had about 15 students, which is remarkably small, obviously. They were in five different countries. Then we had a larger group go now this spring 21. We had about 75 students in 12 different countries because as, as countries are opening, you know, we're able to send more. While UNR and UNLV are not allowing their students to study abroad, some universities are opening back up. Tyler Moyer mainly grew up in Fallon, Nevada, and just graduated with a degree in international business from the University of Idaho. In the beginning of 2020, Tyler was studying abroad in Shanghai, China. I flew into Shanghai January 3rd, I believe. And yeah, with, with full intention of staying in China all through the summer. My group in Shanghai and really just any Western China were one of the first people to like really have to learn how to build a relationship with the virus. Basically, like the first cases were like from my understanding around the like mid-December, beginning of December, but it was like being, it was really low key. There's just a couple of cases here and there in Wuhan. And then, so we didn't even hear anything about the, the virus until the week of Chinese New Year. And just day by day, it started, the situation really started to escalate really quickly. It started to get really dramatic. And yeah, it just became pretty apparent that pretty quickly that our, what we thought was going to be a really fun study abroad year was not going to be the case for us. When it was evident that the coronavirus would be spreading beyond China, students started coming back, either because USAC canceled the program or the State Department asked the students to return to the U.S. Here's Alyssa again. For us, it actually started in January 2020. So we were at the very first yeah. steps of this whole thing because we had a lot of students in China. Tyler recalls what things were like in the early stages of the outbreak. 
like things started escalating, like I was saying. So we weren't able to go to restaurants. We weren't even able to go to the grocery store to get food. They were, they were quite literally having to like chuck food over like, like a barrier. That was like the campus barrier. They had to chuck food over in order for us to like have food to distribute throughout the, throughout the dormitories. But we woke up one morning to a text saying the program's been canceled. Everyone needs to go home immediately. We were all just in absolute shock. We were all just so sad because we were all really starting to like become a really good group of friends. Not only that, but we were falling in love with the city itself. And so us being told we had to go home one morning, it was just an absolute huge shock. Tyler ended up going to Taiwan first. It was there that he started 12 credits worth of Chinese before coming back to the U.S. a few months later. Tyler said that Taiwan was an oasis during the pandemic and saw very few cases while he was there. When it hit the U.S. and it just like exploded within a matter of days, it seemed like. I and mean, I was watching the chart in the U.S. just triple day by day. I just said, okay, I have to go home. So I flew home from the U.S. government. I absolutely did not feel <laughs> helped, to be honest with you. I just did not feel like things were being communicated clearly. It was always just like, it's always like, ah, like kind of no one really wanted to pinpoint what was happening. And, and I was an American citizen abroad thinking like, do I need to come home? Like, what's happening? Fast forward to today, and there's a lot more normalcy. This year, USAC has seen 20 of the countries it sends its students to open back up and will be serving 400 students this coming fall semester, which could grow to more. As for the students that were recalled at the beginning of the pandemic, Everybody came home and finished their work online with us, which was really successful. It was something like 98% of the students did choose to continue online and finish their semester credits. This story was written and produced by Joey Lovato and edited by Joey and Michelle Rendells, with additional editing and production help from me, Jacob Solis. Just a note here before we start the legislative update segment that uh, I mentioned Third House at the beginning of this. And Third House is a comedy show that we do every year. All of the journalists get to get together and make fun of all of the assemblymen and senators and governor and all that. So at the end of this segment, we'll have a little short clip from that as well. All right. On to talking to Riley and Michelle. All right. And so we are here. It's the last full week of the legislature. We have one day left this week. And then we've got Monday is the last day, June 1st, which is Sine Die. Lots going on. There's a lot of things passing. We just got through Third House, which was very fun. Riley and Michelle both both did excellent jobs acting as many of the state legislators, as well as Tabitha Mueller, April Corbin, Paul Boger, and of course, our editor, John Ralston. But anyway, let's talk about the budget. You know, that's kind of the big uh, hub of the big talking point this week. What is going on with the budget? People are pretty concerned about some certain things. Yeah. So I think I've used this analogy before, but the legislature kind of operates on two tracks. There's the policy track. So if you hear things about, oh, there's a gun bill, there's a like lactation room bill, I don't know, whatever policies are coming up, that's sort of going through the process. There's deadlines and everything like that. But then there's also the budget process. So lawmakers have been meeting for probably like 110 of the 120 days just going over all the parts of the governor's recommended budget that he submitted to lawmakers, and they're making tweaks and adjustments. This year's been very different because we entered session assuming it would be austerity. Things were not looking as good with the vaccine and COVID, so projected tax revenues were down. That was revised upwards, so a lot of the work has been sort of like backfilling proposed cuts and kind of figuring out what to do. 
But this is all culminated in the uh, release of what we call the Big Five. There's five budget bills that sort of implement all these things we've been going over for the past 110 days. These include things like direct state appropriations, so money that lawmakers say and spend it for this purpose. There's an Authorizations Act, so they authorize different state agencies to spend money. There's a state worker pay bill, which just sets like the maximum salaries for different state worker positions. There's the... There's the Capital Improvements Bill, which is designating money to various projects, whether that be upgrades at the Department of Corrections, new buildings on NC campuses, or any number of sort of capital building projects. Yeah. So the other interesting thing to note here is that Nevada has a constitutional requirement to fund K-12 through education first. This was a ballot initiative passed in the 90s by Jim Gibbons. So lawmakers last night in the assembly passed out the K-12 budget, which kind of opens the door for them to sort of start approving different bills that appropriate money or things like that. But they had to kind of clear that constitutional hurdle before they did anything else. And there's been a lot of discussion about K-12 funding and what's in that that bill, which I'm sure we can talk a little bit more about. Yeah, so the K-12 budget is a little bit interesting because we're in the middle of this major transition from 50-plus year funding formula to what's called the pupil-centered funding formula. And we've discussed this on the podcast before, but we're starting to see how confusing that transition actually is. Because what's happening is the budget bill that we saw this week puts a certain number on how much public money is going to K-12 education. Surprise, that number is lower than it was in 2019. 2019 was when they decided for the next two years. So it's, it's a little bit going backwards. But there's still a lot of confusion out there about is the number really lower than the lawmakers put 500 million more dollars from the general fund into K-12 education? Or is this a product of putting new funding streams into this calculation that appears in the budget bill? So there's actually a lot of confusion going on right now about that. And and people want to know, are we going to see a difference on the ground in how classes look, in how class sizes are? Or was was this just kind of making up for lost ground from the pandemic? So we're actually still trying to figure that out. We've been asking around to different lawmakers and different people who are in the know. So we hope to have an explainer soon that just kind of puts this in perspective and and gives people a little bit of a heads up on what to expect, whether education is just kind of where it was and status quo, or whether people are really going to notice any differences in this year of transition. And there's also one thing that people have been talking about or complaining about a bit is that certain uh, certain state employees are going to be getting a raise, a 1% raise. And that's obviously factored into the budget. Riley, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So this is also a unique year because this is the first budget cycle where state worker collective bargaining is in place. So state workers are granted their right to collectively bargain with the state, their employer. In 2019, that bill was passed. So this is the first implementation of that. The bargaining agreements, almost all of them called for a 3% cost of living adjustment, which is just basically a 3% raise. And for everyone who's not in one of those bargaining units, so the employees in those groups, that are covered by whatever unions, they're getting a 1% cost of living adjustment in the 2023 fiscal year, which starts in July 2022 and runs through the end of June 2023. So all that's to say is that those in the collective bargaining units are going to see a greater pay increase than their counterparts who are not part of a bargaining unit. This is the whole 
I think, reason why unions and state workers were pushing for this, because this gives them more leverage in terms of sort of, you know, what their take home pay is going to be. There's long been complaints that, like, for example, prison guards or state employed police officers make much less than their counterparts from municipalities. That's because, you know, Reno Police Department, Las Vegas Police Department, all of their employees are covered by a collective bargaining agreement, and they're able to sort of negotiate their way into higher wages, additional leave, things like that. The state's never had that. So those employees are kind of at the mercy of the budget cycle, um, getting their salaries frozen in the bad times or maybe not going up as high because they have to compete with a bunch of other priorities. So it's a little bit more leverage for the state employees. This was all included in the state worker pay bill. And I think Michelle can talk a little bit more about some hesitation that a few members of the committee had on the those differences in the cost of living adjustments. Yeah, this was an interesting point of contention at a money committee that I was monitoring. Basically, Republicans were not happy to see that some state employees are getting a 1% pay raise and some state employees were getting a 3% pay raise. And they said, what if you don't like the union and you still and, and for that reason, you don't get a pay raise? It was kind of interesting because it's not about your individual preference. If you like a union or don't like a union or join a union or don't join a union, it's it's about the employees that are similarly situated. They're in your same agency and and in same job classification, if that group is unionized and has been negotiating a contract, then you're going to get the benefit of that. You're going to get that 3% raise, even if you don't pay union dues and are not individually a member of the union. And that is a product of Nevada being what's called a right to work state. So that means you're not individually forced to pay union dues as an employee. Of course, the people that are paying dues are a little resentful of the people that aren't paying dues. You heard Chair Maggie Carlton from the Ways and Means Committee saying, we've got a lot of freeloaders in this state. You know, she's a union gal. So she really, I think, probably has a little bit of a beef with people who are reaping the benefits and not paying the union dues to actually do the negotiations and things like this. So all the Republicans voted against this pay bill on those grounds. And they actually were on the record saying that they weren't upset with people getting a 3% raise, they were upset with the people who didn't get that and who got the 1%. So I I think Chair Carlton got them on the record with that in hopes of encouraging them to support more revenue. Another thing that I want to talk about, which is there's still this federal relief coming into the state, right? There's a lot of money that should come into the state from the the COVID relief packages that hasn't really been been allocated yet. How is that being factored in when they're dealing with the budget right now? At this point, what we're seeing is the budget committees are very single-minded towards addressing the general fund and addressing what money we already have as a state. So actually, there's been probably less discussion of that money in the past few days than we even saw before, because I think they're, they're constitutionally required to balance this budget with state funds and everything else is kind of just gravy. So they're just working on this particular task. So I really do think we've only got a couple days left in the session. Hardly any substantial discussion has happened about what we're going to do with the $2.7 billion from the federal government. So it's looking pretty darn sure we're going to be doing all that in a special session. Yeah. And the, the few things that they have done is that they've authorized the state to hire all current vacancies in state employee positions, which is about 300 people. They backfilled a bunch of a Nevada system of higher education positions as well. 
So really, it's been focused on sort of filling out the ranks of state employees. A lot of those positions were frozen, meaning that they had funding for them, but they didn't want to fill the positions. So that's kind of been all we've seen so far. I think the governor and lawmakers are trying to like get as much public input as possible into what they can use the $2.7 billion for. But again, like Michelle said, they're not going to figure that out in four days or three days. So this is all going to be coming up in a special session. One thing that we have heard is a bill to authorize $54 million to Dieter to upgrade their system. And that is attached to us getting federal funding. That is conditional on the state getting these funds to make that project happen. Lawmakers want to look like they're doing something on Dieter. Democrats want to make sure they kind of have a hand in this issue and don't look like they don't care about it. So lawmakers were pretty darn vague. State agencies were pretty darn vague when they talked about this project. Unfortunately, IT projects are very well known to go over budget and go over time. So I guess the hope is that it will be ready next time there is a recession and hopefully that recession is not anytime soon. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for for covering all that and kind of breaking down what's going on with the budget right now. I'm sure we will have plenty more to talk about in the, I'm assuming, numerous special sessions that we will see this summer. Thank you again and, and, and keep up the good work. There's a lot more to do before signing die on Monday. Yep. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Joey. Just wanted to leave a little note here after the segment ended that after we finished recording and before we put up the podcast, there have been some updates on the K-12 budget. So if you want to find out more about that, you can check our website. And now a short clip from Third House, where the press corps gets to make fun of lawmakers at the end of the legislative session. They've truly got off the deep end. I don't even know where I am anymore. Whoa. Is that Senator Settlemeyer? Governor, there's no need to be alarmed. You've entered a a wonderful dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the innovation zone. Senator (laughs) Settlemeyer, what on earth are you talking about? That's just a study now, and I thought you hated innovation zones. Welcome, Steve. There's no need to be afraid. We're all just different hashes on this wild blockchain transaction we call life. (laughs) We're all equal in Opportunity Zone number 478. (sighs) What kind of noxious weeds are you smoking down there in Menden? (laughs) James, I thought all the rurals hated this corporate handout. I mean, innovative new government type? Steve, Steve, you've got it all wrong. The James Settlemeyer you used to know was an opponent of innovation zones, but zone citizen number 23 knows that the only way that the minority party has a chance in this building is to set up an entirely new government. Please, there's no need to be alarmed. Just repeat after me. Uh, okay. I pledge allegiance. I pledge allegiance. To the stablecoin. To the stablecoin? of the United Zone of District 478. Of the United what? And to the innovation and the unique taxable product for which it stands. Okay, you've, you've officially lost me. One zone under Jeff with, with liberty and untraceable transactions for all. <laughs> That's it. That's it, I- I'm out of here. I'll let Lombardo deal with you freaks in 2023. <laughs> Thank <clears throat> you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, Stacey Burns, Amber Torres, Tommy Gutierrez, Elwood M., Bill Frank, Alyssa Nada, Tyler Moyer, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our newsletter, Soundcheck, which comes out on the first Friday of every month, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, hydration hacks, serotonin solutions, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at the or jacob at the Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad and myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Today's show was brought to you by United Health Group.